Welcome to this episode of The Chaplain's Chair, a thought-provoking podcast about religion, faith, family, and yes, even some politics sprinkled in from time to time. And you can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor FM. And you can find us also at thechaplainschair.com or on Facebook, uh, where you can message me or leave a comment if you like. And I'll thank you for stopping by. I know the uh, Easter season's upon us again. This Sunday's Palm Sunday, so uh, this podcast is going to speak to some of the theological lessons we can take from it so that we uh, might enjoy the blessings of that season that were intended from the lessons that we learned from it. And you know, in the unfolding plan of God, everything has a purpose. And the Easter season is one of the most observed and celebrated time periods in Christianity. And many who don't normally go to church, go to church during that time to experience the hope it observes and shares with the world. And I'm going to plan on asking you a lot of questions in this podcast today that I have no intention of answering. And I want them to fester in your spirit, and I want them to cause you to seek answers. And it's not because I want to boost subscriptions to the podcast, but because I believe God wants you to know the answers and wants you to never stop learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best way to learn about him is to embark on that pursuit by yourself. Jesus Christ is central in Christianity. He's the author and finisher of our faith, as it's written in the book of Hebrews. The Apostle Paul, uh, who I'm going to mention a lot today, uh, revealed that he sought to know nothing else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And knowing Christ was the end of Paul's pursuit. And I hope to lead you to that point, God willing. I, I hope to take that point and several other points about the life of Christ through this podcast and maybe future podcasts and offer you some theological uh, truth about Jesus that we tend to neglect and I think to the detriment of our Christian experience. And I want to give you an example. The book of Ephesians in particular offers marriage as a picture of what our relationship with Jesus Christ should look like. And just as an aside, I hope that uh, if you're following with these podcasts, you do so with a Bible uh, in hand, because I reference the Bible a lot, and I'd like you to uh, look up things as I'm going through. But in the book of Ephesians, it says in chapter 5, verses 28 through 32, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth as uh, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ concerning, uh, excuse me, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So using this as a guide, let me offer some thoughts to you from my marriage, and maybe you can draw some parallels in your marriage or your own experiences, perhaps, with marriage. Uh, there are many dimensions to my marriage. Uh, there are many sides to my wife. She's a business manager. She's mother, she's grandmother, teacher, employee, daughter, sister, granddaughter, aunt, citizen, friend, sports fan, student, counselor, nature lover, and, of course, she's my wife. I have my own list of roles, too, uh, very similar to this. Only the gender is, has changed. If you would ask any married man who wants to get in trouble, what the most important role of his significant other would be, he would say wife, and he'd be wrong. And why is that? Because all of the other traits that I've listed shape the kind of wife that she is. In short, there's much more to her than just being a wife, and all of the other things make her the wife and the person that she is. And to embrace only that one element would be to ignore the other aspects of who she is, all equally important. Uh, they contribute to the kind of wife that she is. Now, if I were to focus on just the aspect, the wife aspect of who my wife is, I, I'm going to lose out. I won't ever really get to know her. 
because I don't pay attention to those things that make her that person. I won't know what our relationship was about, uh, why it is the way it is, why she chooses to put up with me, and all of the unattractive traits that I possess on my own, and she sure isn't hanging around me because I'm rich. So how do we compare that to our relationship with Jesus? What do we do with that? Now, for myself, in my years in Bible college and seminary, Jesus was just a biographical character of history, uh, sort of. Uh, given his due reverence and honor, of course, but mostly a topic of study. You know, someone I had to research to get the right answers uh, for the test or the research paper, etc. I took a very professional approach to knowing him, much like you'd read a biography of a famous person. And after I graduated from the seminary and began reading and studying the Bible again as a personal discipline for my own spiritual nourishment, I felt like I was getting to know an old friend again, a friend I'd taken uh, for granted, forgotten even. And I was reminded of those things about Jesus Christ that were special, that awed me, that made me bow my head in reverence, that made me praise God for that relationship. And in fact, were intended to elicit that very response, to be able to look into a mirror and understand that my personal worth with all of my faults uh, comes from Jesus Christ. I had to admit that you know, over time, I had neglected that personal relationship that God wants us to know that we have through his son, Jesus Christ. And my concern today is that some of you who may be new to the faith or maybe just examining the faith don't know that such a personal relationship exists or can exist. And some of you who may have been in the faith for a while uh, may have taken for granted some of these things uh, the same way we can take our spouse for granted over time. Now, Jesus Christ is more than a savior although that's the primary emphasis during the Easter season. I have read uh, memes over the years that say, you know, Jesus, he was a teacher, a healer, a prophet, and a king. And I want to say more importantly, Jesus was all of those things uh, before he was your Savior. And all of those things reveal the kind of Savior Jesus is, and more importantly, why. It's these characteristics, as well as Savior, that this podcast and some future podcasts I'll be doing will begin to address to understand the kind of Savior Jesus was. It's important to know those things, too. Your understanding of who Jesus Christ is will directly affect how many of the blessings a relationship with him offers, which will be appropriated for your life. Now, if you happen to be listening today and taking notes, it's captured in John chapter 10, though I think a good example of it's captured in John uh, chapter 10. And I'm going to read that portion in John uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through uh, 11. And John begins in verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth, excuse me, when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now this parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. And then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now, Jesus is offered in this portion of, uh, of Scripture that he is a good shepherd, one that gives his life for the sheep. But we often, and theologians are guilty of this too, we stop at the who gives his life for the sheep part, and we don't ask the question, well, what makes Jesus good? What makes him the good shepherd? In fact, Jesus himself asked that very question of a man who asked him about eternal life in Matthew 19, 17. He said to him, good master. And Jesus said, why callest thou me good? Do you know why Jesus is called good? In John chapter 10, the apostle John teaches something else that's very important, something I believe is captured in this verse. In verse 10 of the 10th chapter, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And I want to look at the second half of this verse. There's an important comma after the word life. I am come that they might have life, comma. And I heard a pastor one time say years ago, your relationship with Christ determines which side of the comma you're on. Are you on the life side of the comma or the abundant life side of the comma? Did Jesus come just so that you would have life? or abundant life, because Jesus says both life and abundant life here. So he doesn't stop at merely life, although that was a part of it. Now, the life of Christ, if you study it, is intensely theological, and references and allusions uh, to him are throughout the Bible. Everything he did had a purpose. This particular verse speaks to an aspect of Christian anthropology, and that's a fancy word for saying the study of human nature, the theological study of human nature. Rather, because the original sin in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve's partaking of the forbidden, uh, forbidden fruit of story we're all familiar with, it severed man's relationship with God and condemned him to death. But Jesus came to restore that relationship, not simply to give you life, but to restore your fellowship with God. The difference between life and abundant life. Well, let me ask you a pointed question, and I want you to personalize it. What exactly is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it simply about life, or is it about life more abundant? Is it about salvation only, or a relation? It's an incredibly important distinction. God wants a relation, so he offers salvation. You know, John 10.10 shows us the difference, I think. If it's only about salvation for you, you only have life. And if it's about relation, you have life more abundantly. I had a pastor one time who challenged us from time to time, and he'd ask, is that all that Jesus is about, to save you from hell? Well, I ask you, is that what it was about in the Garden of Eden? Is that why God promised Adam he would fix what he broke? Do you think that's all there was to it? Uh, do we think it didn't grieve God to banish Adam, who he formed with his own hands from his presence? And we forget not only was man banished from the presence of God, but God lost the fellowship with the crown of his creation, because his holiness demanded it, not because he wanted Adam punished. Now, God wants that fellowship back. That's the message of redemption. That's the, the thread of the story throughout the Bible. God wants that fellowship back. That's the purpose of the gospel story. And with the Easter season upon us, we'll soon be singing about it. The last verse in the infamous hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, it says, Then he'll call me someday to his home far away where his glory forever I'll share, a relationship with Jesus in his home forever. Now, that's profound. That's personal. 
that's intimate. Now, let's look at this again from the marriage perspective. Is that all there is to a marriage? Having a wife or a husband? Is it just about having someone to cook for you? Provide an income? Take any number of things. It should be about the relationship, shouldn't it? I mean, if your marriage is just about having a cook, an income, a sex partner, or any number of other things, you don't have an abundant marriage either. You just have a marriage. And it's meant to be so much more than that. Is your relationship with Jesus Christ just about salvation? Just about life? Then you don't have an abundant life. You just have life. And God intended it to be so much more than that. In Philippians 3, verses 10 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, pay careful attention to the order that Paul uses here. Know him, know Jesus first, know the power of his ministry, and then share in his sufferings. Then, that I might attain under the resurrection of the dead. A relationship first. Salvation was second. Well, Paul had a unique experience a few years before this in the book of Acts, chapter 9. And he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. A bright light knocks Paul off his horse, and he finds himself in the presence of Jesus himself. And the grace that Jesus offered him changed Paul's life. He records it in his epistles. He spent the rest of his days pursuing the knowledge of Christ to grow that relationship. Who was this man, this Lord, who sought out a relationship with me after all that I have done? Paul wanted to know the answers to that. Now, I'm not here to focus on Paul's pursuit, only to put out that he knew that knowing Christ was the apex of his pursuit. Now, that should be our pursuit as well. And I will add, it's a lifelong pursuit. You never stop learning about Jesus. You will never stop, but pursue the knowledge just the same. Explore the knowledge of Christ in his eternal setting, in his humanity, and in his glory. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The fullness of time, key phrase. Jesus is the culmination of redemptive history. If you want to know the redemptive plan of God, you know Jesus. But it says something else too, that after redemption that we might receive the adoption of sons to be put back into the family of God. Adoption. Put into the family of God. According to John, Jesus is the living Word of God, active in the creation and preservation of all that is. Now, the prophet Micah says of Jesus, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, this is a prophecy of Jesus' first coming, the Christmas story we celebrate every year. But Jesus existed in eternity past, from, everlaf- from everlasting, the, the prophet Micah says. Well, what's that mean to you? In this Easter season, find out. You know, Christ's humanity is captured by my favorite verse in the Bible, from the Gospel of Luke, another Christmas verse. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, a human child, a human infant, born in the city of David, 
to be a savior. The son of God didn't stay in eternity, referred to in the prophet uh, Micah, but entered into humanity as a man and lived like you and me. And the apostle John in his gospel, chapter one, verse three, wrote it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. God became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. It means we saw it. He came to reveal it. He came to give us a picture of God the Father. He said to the apostles, you want to see God? Look at me. And in the life of Christ, his ministry offered us many teachings, miracles, and prophecies. Well, what were they for? Too many see the life of Christ as a job interview, a present-day offering of a resume, if you will, to compare him to the many religious sages of the ages in the hopes you will hire him as your religious guide. I know that's being kind of flippant, but that's really what people think about it, that Jesus is just one of many, and this is his resume. Well, the life of Christ is not meant as a resume. He did not perform miracles so he could come to say, see what I can do? Everything Jesus did had a purpose, had a purpose for us. It meant something. They were supernatural manifestations of higher law to demonstrate the superiority and exclusiveness of God's divine grace over fallen human nature and man's personal efforts to justify himself as revealed in, in every world religion except Christianity. They had moral and symbolic significance intended for the good of man. Well, what do you know of this significance? You know, the teachings of Christ baffle those around him. It says in Matthew 7, 29, it came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was not considered to be a learned man. He didn't have any formal education, but he was smarter than the scholars. He was smarter than the religious leaders. The historian, church historian, Philip Schaff, he wrote of Jesus years back, he came from heaven and spoke of the fullness of his personal intercourse with the great Jehovah. He was no scholar, no artist, no orator. Yet he was wiser than all sages and made an impression on his age and all ages after him, such as no man ever made or can make. Well, what do you know of that wisdom? And has it made an impression on you? Now, the death of Christ in the prime of his life was shameful. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, what do you know about this death? And what was it for? What does it mean for you? Is it just about eternal life or is it something more? And too often the refrain is, see how much Jesus loved you? He died for you. Well, that may be true, but his death accomplished much more than that. What else was the death of Christ meant to accomplish? Afterward, this verse says he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Well, it did something special, and there's a finality to it. Well, what did it accomplish? Have you ever asked yourself that? Because the love shown on the cross was one act of love in a series of acts that begins with his birth and doesn't ever end. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, for some reason, we stop at the he came and died to save us part. 
as if that's all there is to his ministry and purpose. But the verse says that Jesus became obedient unto his death. Well, what does unto mean? Well, it means that there's much that led up to it, but there's also much that comes after it. And to say that Christ's first coming was only the beginning is an understatement. His first coming is established in time. It had a beginning and it had an end. And we sometimes place the life of Christ within those time parameters. And we limit its application for our lives when we do that. But what Jesus accomplished in his brief time on earth has eternal purpose, things we've yet to see. His resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his intercession for us at the throne of God and his promised return, all has significance for us. In conquering death and hell as the prince of life, Jesus commissions believers to preach his message to every creature, to tell his story, something churches do in that spirit to this day. But even so, I think sometimes we live as if Christ is not ever present with us. Back to Philippians 2, this time in verses 9 through 11, it said, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His ascension into heaven, his exalted position, where he took possession of a heavenly throne and protects those who call on his name, serves to remind us that he is ever and will be eternally present. Now, it's reported that the French conqueror Napoleon, I don't know if this is true or not, but it makes a good anecdote, was awestruck by the millions who were willing to die for, quote, a crucified Nazarene who founded a spiritual empire by love. While none would die for Alexander, Caesar, or even himself, who established empires by force. And Napoleon reportedly said, I know men, and I tell you, Christ was no man. His spirit overwhelms and confounds me. Well, my question is, does it do that to you? Now, in closing, let me get back to my illustration of marriage. If you are only in a relationship with Christ so he can be your Savior, you've missed a large chunk of who Jesus is. If he's not all your, also your teacher, you'll live blind. And if he's not also your prophet, you will not hear God. And if he's not also your king, you will live without governance. If he is not also your God, you will live without authority. Now, these are all facets of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all mean something special for you. They all represent different elements of a wonderful relationship. Now, why did the Lord of heaven leave his eternal glory to live amongst us? Is it just to give you salvation or is it something more? Perhaps much more. In this Easter season, I encourage you to find out. Give your life to Jesus this Easter season. Confess your sins to him. Accept him as your savior. Begin that glorious relationship with him that never ends. May the Lord bless you and yours richly this Easter season. You join us next week. And we will talk about the glorious story of the resurrection. And I hope that you come back. Thank you for stopping by. Have a great day. God bless you.